good evening, everybody. I think you can tell us the time, time for us to start. We usually start five minutes after the time. Um, uh, my name is Nazani Sharokni. I'm an assistant professor in the Gender Studies Department here at um, LSE and affiliate or associate, I don't know how I'm called, of the Middle East Center. Um, I would make some announcements first before introducing our um, esteemed speaker. So um, the way this evening will happen is that our speaker will speak for 20 to 25 minutes and then we will have plenty of time for question and answer. Um, and I'm also hoping that we can kind of go through this event without an intermission. So if the phones can be uh, on silence, that would be great. And having said that, if you want to tweet about the event uh, tonight, please use um, hashtag LSE Iraq. And we encourage you to tweet about the event. Um, and I think I should just introduce Zainab Kaya, who's um, with us here tonight. Actually, I'm here with uh, with Zainab. Apparently, she's been here for uh, new to LSE. She's been here for um, many years. She's a research fellow at the LSE Middle, Middle East Center. She's part of the UK DFID funded conflict research program and is leading projects on gender drivers of conflict in Iraq, the impact of genocide on the Yazidi community, responses to internal displacement in Iraqi Kurdistan, WPS and displacement in the Middle East, and women's political participation in Kuwait. She's also a lecturer at the Pembroke King's Program, University of Cam Cambridge, and Fortunately for her, maybe, but unfortunately for us, we are uh, losing her. Uh, she's going to SOAS um, Development Studies. So um, you can follow her um, activities and publications there. And tonight she will be talking to us about Yazidis and ISIS, the causes and consequences of sexual violence in conflict. Thank you, Nazanin, for the introduction. Um, hello, everyone. Good to see you all and familiar faces as well. Um, I will keep my presentation to 25 minutes. Uh, I will try. Um, and I will keep my presentation short. So I'll just to give you a background on this research, um, as Nazanin said, uh, I'm part of the CRP conflict research program, uh, DFID funded conflict research program, and this research was conducted uh, with the support uh, of that fund. Uh, and um, it sought to understand the uh, gender drivers of violence in conflict. Uh, that's how I started. And then, uh, because the focus was in Iraq, um, in the process I uh, was also doing some research in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Uh, and through that research, I met some Yazidi communities uh, before and after the uh, after the genocide, uh, after the attacks. Um, so I wanted to work on uh, on this case and interrogate uh, sexual violence in conflict um, in the case of ISIS with a focus on the Yazidis. Um, and my aim uh, was to um, understand how. Um, sexual violence and, uh, and genocide affected the community. Um, it's, of course, hard to figure out how the community is changing. You know, change happens for many reasons in the long term and uh, hard to figure out uh, what, how this has affected, uh, affected the community. But I nonetheless wanted to talk to the Yazidis to, from their perspective, how they were affected and what is, if any change, what's happening to their community, especially in terms of religious 
beliefs, in terms of um, gender norms within the community, and also their relations with other communities in Iraq, other, other minorities and the majority communities, the Kurds and, and, um, and Sunnis and Arabs. Um, so I thought it would be an easy, not, I, I knew it wasn't going to be an easy research project, of course, but it was very challenging. It was very taxing. Um, and um, uh, it, was very, it was very illuminating and, and, and touching as well in, in many ways. Um, and I was privileged to talk to a lot of um, Yazidi community members, uh, community leaders, um, those who were displaced, um, girls who were captured by ISIS and, and rescued, um, also international actors um, and local NGOs who are working to uh, support the Yazidis um, displaced and, and those who are affected by, by violence. Uh, and to be able to get a bigger picture, get the bigger picture and understand the processes. So what this led to is um, basically my observations on how sexual violence has affected the Yazidi community. Um, but, I, but I try to give voice to them mostly. So what I'm saying may not be necessarily fully re re reflecting what they mean and what they said or what they feel. And I'm not claiming to be the voice for them at all, and I wouldn't want to. Uh, but mainly my, my observations, and I tried to use a lot of their direct quotes in my, in my paper and in another paper as well, um, but mainly observations, and you know, the findings are tentative, obviously. The bigger point I want to make in this paper is, uh, uh, basically it has two sides. One of them is, um, why, why did this happen in the first place, um, sexual violence and attack against the Yazidis? Um, it became very popular. The media was always focusing on them, um, which has a lot of issues, obviously, with the way the media was handling and with the way they were interviewing uh, the, the, those who were affected by violence, and, uh, and it became like a sensational topic of discussion. And it was mainly presented as something like an anomaly, uh, like ISIS is so crazy. Uh, they are so out of their minds that some, they, they did something uh, like this. And, and also sexual violence is usually seen as a side, as an outcome of conflict, uh, as, as something inevitable sometimes. Um, and, and in that sense, it can, there, may, there is some rhetoric of, you know, not normalization, but, you know, it, it happens in conflict kind of idea. Associate sexual violence only with conflict and conflict context and, and militant groups. What I try to do in this paper to understand what are the non-conflict related reasons that feeds into the conflict context that affect sexual violence, structural factors, long-term issues, um, minority position, uh, gender norms in the society, uh, and how these are within a continuum, uh, take, uh, how these are all part of a continuum uh, that affects the uh, practices of sexual violence in conflict, but this practice of sexual, uh, sexual violence in conflict is not disconnected from the wider and other forms of violence uh, in the society in the long term. Uh, so I wanted to try to bring that in, in the analysis. Um, so 
what I will do is to just briefly talk about what I mean with these structural factors, and then we'll quickly summarize um, the changes from the Yazidi community's perspective that they are going through after, after this. Uh, but I want to make four main uh, points before I start, because these are kind of my you know, takeaway messages. If I don't have time at the end, and Nazian tells me to shut up, uh, I want to tell them now so that they are <laughs> out there. Um, the first point is related to what I said, uh, that you know, the sexual violence in conflict is part of a continuum of violence against women, from domestic violence to legal discrimination to rape during war. It's not a standalone issue. The second point is uh, we need to avoid simplistic explanations of religion and culture in relation to women's position in Iraqi society. And we need to adopt a holistic approach to tackling sexual violence in, in this context and in, in any context. Um, and we need to consider the intersection of gender with other factors uh, such as socioeconomic status, minority position, geographical and urban-rural uh, location, they all take part in intersect to, to lead to the outcomes such as, uh, such as what the SED community experienced. Um, the third point is it is the responsibility of all, all actors to end violence and discrimination against women. But there is a tendency to put this burden on women's organizations, and this is definitely the case in Iraq as well. Um, and this kind of putting the onus on women's organizations removes responsibility partly from those actors who perpetuate, maintain patriarchy and discrimination. Um, the final point is, uh, and this is mainly partly related to this paper, but may, my general insight from uh, my daughter keeps calling me, sorry. Um, um, so the, um, it's something that I have observed again and again in my visits to Iraq in the last four or five years is that, um, and my conversations with the international actors, um, I, I think, I'm, I'm not saying everyone does this, but we, there is a general um, acceptance that the gender, gender norms or the feminist ideas or gender equality are Western international ideas, as of like they are the divisors of these, of these norms. And, you know, I'm very clearly can tell, tell all of you, women's rights activism in Iraq is not a foreign import. It has been there for a long time. It has a long history. And feminism is not a Western idea. Uh, it exists there. It exists in different forms. Um, in different contexts. So those are the four things that I want to um, say. Uh, and then if I can't say the other things, it's fine as long as these are out there. Um, so the Yezidi case is going back to it. So the wider um, uh, context. So all I'm, all, everything I'm going to say about the Yezidis, um, I, I would like you to think about, take, it, take this, um, understand this in the context of a community. Uh, whose numbers are dwindling significantly. Um, they are dispersed across Iraq and the world. Um, and uh, a, a huge number of this community is displaced from their uh, place of habitation for, 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 for a very, very long time. And, uh, and they have no hope of going back. So, uh, and their religion and their identity is very much connected to, to the territory, to where they live, and they have... Uh, shrines there, they have uh, religious rituals that they are connect connected to where they live. 
So being away from that context and, and not knowing when they can go back and fearing that they can never go back makes them think that they have no future in Iraq. Uh, and one of the reasons for why they are migrating a lot is, is this. But they don't want to migrate. They want to stay, but they don't have the option. So the whole community is dispersed all around the world. And they fear, how are we going to maintain our community? And think about this. This is a community that has more or less remained more um, closed in terms of, you know, they don't accept others to the religion. Both your fam parents have to be Yazidi for you to be Yazidi. Uh, it's a close-knit society, the Sinjari Yazidis especially. So this is a big challenge for that community. So everything I'm going to say, and everything is written in this paper, please see this from this kind of perspective. Um, so uh, just going back to the structural causes, if you are interested, you can read them. I'm just going to quickly go through them. Um, so what are the structural causes of sexual violence in conflict and, and in the Yazidi case? Uh, what are the long-term processes away from this short-term conflict focus? What can we, how can we connect this incident to the wider other structural contexts? Um, and I think the key thing that came, as, and from the interviews as well that I did, came out, was that uh, the precarious position of the Yazidis as a minority group is a key, key factor. Uh, as a religious minority, and as a religious minority that's not Christian, that's not Jew, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an ancient religion, um, and their numbers are very small. And this is a community that has experienced um, expulsion and violence throughout their history. Um, some of the Yazidis I talked to said, oh, this is our 174th genocide. So they have this long, long experience of constant, and they have been in the margins of the margins of the societies they have lived. Um, so, and then in Iraqi con the Iraqi context, the minority-majority relations is, has not been very uh, opportune for minority groups to be able to raise their voices and, and you know, talk about their political issues or societal issues. Um, and Yazidis live, uh, especially Sinjari Yazidis, um, live in the disputed territories. I don't know if you know the Iraqi context. Um, there's a area they call disputed territories that whose you know it's the, its um, ownership is disputed between the Iraqi government in Baghdad and the Kurdistan regional government and they can't agree on on and most of the minorities are there and these areas are usually um, infrastructurally neglected um, and uh, and security guarantees are not necessarily very consistent uh, so, and this makes minority groups very vulnerable and which is why when you hear about Ninova and minorities, and they have been very much affected by ISIS because they were very easy targets for ISIS. Uh, so their minority position is a key factor here, and it's part of this wider structural context, and this has a long, long history. Um, the other factor is the wider gender norms and equalities in, in inequalities in, in the society, in Iraqi society. Um, and this has multiple levels, obviously. One of them, I think we should also talk about the ISIS, sorry, uh, the Yazidi community, you know, in the Sinjar area. Um, uh, not many women are educated. They don't, they marry young, and, and there is a significant uh, hierarchy, gender hierarchy within the community. And then uh, you, when you look at ISIS, how they, how they incorporated gender into their political doctrine and 
use this to organize the community economy and everything. It's a very gendered kind of organization and, and planning. Uh, and there is, a, there is a very significant male authority, uh, and this male authority is obviously authority over Muslim women, but Muslim women are fine because they are Muslim, and anyway, it's, this is a, uh, it, it's not seen as a disadvantage from an ISIS Muslim woman perspective to be, to be um, within that authority <coughs> structure. Uh, this is how it's meant to be. I mean, at least that's what they say in their doctrines, right? Um, but for a woman who is not Muslim, and especially Yazidi, not, uh, not from a religion uh, of, of, the, of the, you know, they are not the people of the book, and uh, that's what they called, you know, they are not necessarily, you know, so they, they are su subjected to a different kind of criteria uh, where their level is even lower than non-Muslims who are Christians and, and Jews. So they can be enslaved. They can be, um, they have no control over their, over their well-being or, or bodies, anything like that. So the, in this gendered male uh, authority hierarchy of the ISIS, so the Yazidi women are at, right at the bottom. Um, and then there is the Iraqi context and wider gender inequalities in that context that also uh, increase uh, the discrimination towards, uh, towards Yazidi women exacerbated. Uh, and all women are, are subjected to this at different levels based on their background, based on their uh, educational level, based on their ethnicity, religious background, all that intersections, you know, uh, circumstances that shape their experience of gender inequality, obviously, differently. Uh, but for Yazidi women, for instance, one example is um, that there is a law if uh, the father is Muslim, the child's identity is written in the, in the identity card as Muslim. Uh, so think about the children born out of born of ISIS uh, uh, to, to captive women. So these women cannot give their Yazidi identity to, to their children, partly because of community rules, but also the community um, leaders were saying, well, the legal uh, rules in Iraq don't allow us to uh, make them Yazidi anyway. So this kind of exacerbates their, their experience. And there are several, several examples of how the wider inequalities in the legal system, in the political system, in the implementation of the norms and the religious norms and how they organize the society, exacerbate uh, the gendered experiences of, of Yazidi women. Um, so I think I'll stop there about... So what I basically want to say is that the wider structural gender-based discrimination and other inequalities maybe do not directly causally link, you know, create sexual violence. They are not, they are not as actors, but they facilitate. They provide the context. Um, and without that context, sexual violence wouldn't have happened. I think it's a key, key wider facilitating factor. And that's what we need to work on. Uh, when we work on sexual violence, it's not just about defeating ISIS and, and getting, getting rid of them. Um, um, that's, I think, all I'm going to say on that. Moving on to the Yazidi perspective. As I said, I'm not claiming to say this is what they said, but this is just my interpretation and my, my understanding of it, and I wouldn't be doing any justice, I think, uh, 
anything I say will not make justice to what they told me, the insights they shared, uh, and, and the suffering they are going through. Uh, it's impossible to fully reflect that. Uh, just to f we can just feel it and not really necessarily explain it, but um, I will try to do kind of analytically, uh, at least do, do, do some justice to how the society is kind of reacting to this tragedy. You know, what, how do they cope with it? What, what did they do? What do they do in terms of um, dealing with day-to-day -day practical issues, but also in terms of like these existential questions about what's going to happen to their community in the future? Like, will they, um, will they disappear? Uh, is, this, is this the end for them? Uh, and that was the feeling very much in the community. Um, so but the main thing, I think, in terms of gender norms, there are some... Um, uh, significant changes. Uh, I think the, so. The Yazidi community is a is quite a patriarchal community, especially the rural Yazidi communities. I'm not, I don't want to generalize this to all the Yazidi communities. Um, and 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 sexual sexual in, intercourse with uh, another uh, man or woman from another religion outside marriage. These are quite big taboos, uh, and there has been incidences of honor killing uh, of of women uh, in the Yazidi community. So it's a big, it's a big issue. Uh, and if you basically voluntarily or involuntarily convert to another religion, you're not accepted back to the community. So the captives were, were forcefully converted to Islam, especially, especially men. Um, so, <clears throat> um, so in a society like this, you would expect this to be a big, big, um, you know, um, you, you wouldn't expect the community to kind of accept the situation and, and, uh, and, and, and deal with it in a way that includes also acceptance of those who experience sexual violence. But it has been the opposite. The community has accepted survivors of sexual violence, uh, and there was a religious decree um, saying, you know, who, those who were forcefully converted to another religion or uh, who were uh, who experienced these atrocities are welcome back to the community. And Many of the uh, girls I talked to and women I talked to were saying initially they were very fearful of coming back because they thought something would happen. Their husbands or their uh, fathers might do something to them. So they were fearful of their, of their survival if they go back to the community. And they didn't know if they would be accepted to the community. So will I have, do I have a home or not? And they said that ISIS uh, captors were also constantly saying them, you know, you will be killed if you go back. I know, you know, all that, all that fear being injected to them. But when they found out about this decree, um, uh, they made an effort to uh, come back. There are some really interesting stories, fascinating stories, how, how they escaped. You know, the, it's intricate ways of like long-term planning and, you know, very inspiring stories of how they ran away and then how they tried to connect, contact with their families too. But after this decree, the number of women and girls who returned back to their community increased significantly. And the community, when they came back, uh, accepted them uh, and, uh, and uh, pro, you know, are protective of them. But I, this is not to say that everything is perfect. You know, the, the taboo of being exposed to sexual violence still continues. You know, these girls or women are not necessarily... There is some kind of... Um, they can't really go out very often. They have to wear dark clothes. They, they don't... They look... They are expected to look sad. Um, or 
um, they are traumatized still, and the families are also traumatized, but they don't even know they are traumatized. They don't know what to do with it. They, you know, they are just going through this. And the society uh, and then the other community members are kind of, um, there's a judgment because of what they experience from the community, even though they accept them. So there's a high rate of suicide among survivors, basically. And children's is another, children is another issue I touched on that. It's a very difficult one for the Yazidi community because um, uh, so they even made an activity, but there was a decree saying children uh, of, of the captives are welcome, but then they withdrew that decree later on. Um, the community cannot expect those children. For some reason, it's a, you know, I know kind of they told me what the reasons are, but um, because, of the, because of the nature of the Yazidi identity, the identity passes from father to, and mother, and then um, uh, a, a, a kid born to a Muslim uh, uh, father uh, and an ISIS father at that is, is just very difficult to accept for them. So it's, it's a very difficult issue. Uh, but there is a sense of prioritizing the community's needs over the women's and children's needs in that context, uh, which is uh, very sad to see. Um, another uh, change in terms of gender norms is talking about sexual violence. They talk about it. Uh, you know, some of the brothers have written books about their sisters' experience. Uh, husbands talk about it. You know, it's not just the women themselves. They talk as well, uh, but the community talks about it. Uh, and this is very interesting because usually it's kind of a hush-hush uh, topic, right? Um, and uh, so I, I asked about this, you know, why, why is this? And they were like, again, going back to this idea of, you know, we can't survive this anymore, we can't take this anymore. And yet another, yet another you know, risk of being, you know, terminated and, and, and this type of, uh, experience sexual violence is for them has been very, very, very difficult to cope with. And they basically say the world has to know about it. We are not ashamed of it. We didn't create this and we'll talk about it. Uh, and um, linked to this, uh, another change is in the Yazidi community is their increased international engagement. Uh, so they engage with the international community. Uh, and this is a bit of a different uh, stage in the history of the Yazidi community, actually. Uh, so they are present in international platforms. They uh, represent the Yazidi community in, in different contexts. They tap onto the um, international legal frameworks uh, that create protective uh, legal frameworks for, for the community in terms of experiences of genocide, sexual violence, so on and so forth, and, and minority rights. Another change was public engagement and education. Uh, again and again, I heard this from many women and men that you know we, we have to educate our girls. Um, it's a weapon. Uh, so we have no other thing. We are a minority. We have no other uh, tool and, uh, to but, but education. Uh, so that there is a, a also engage, increased engagement with the local NGOs uh, work, uh, that are working in, in the Iraqi Kurdistan and NGO uh, five or six NGO members mentioned, among other NGO members, said uh, that initially it was very hard to reach out to the Yazidi women. In, in these were women's organizations mainly. Uh, but then 
the engagement increased significantly. And there are other things as well in the paper. I won't have time to go to it. And you're being very kind, Nazim. Thank you. Uh, do I? Okay. <laughs> uh, I think I will finish by saying that uh, the I think two things that I that I that, that were for me striking was uh, the acceptance of sexual violence survivors into community. Uh, and, and, and open engagement and talking about it uh, in, in, at home, outside home, in international platforms, on TV, on radio. Um, and then uh, the international engagement is another factor I think is very interesting. And, the, you know, I think that's something that we should keep uh, observing as, if we, as researchers to see where the community uh, and community's engagement with the wider society is evolving to. Uh, and in a way, international engagement, do they have any other chance? That's the other sad question, you know. Do, do they have any other... They have no... They think that the only way they can go back home is if, uh, if there is a set structure of an international guarantee that, that will protect them where they are. And, and there is no effort to do that, so they can't see that future. But their, zone, their only hope is such an international safe zone, they said, similar to what was created for Iraqi Kurds back in the 1990s. Um, they can't go, they say they can't go back to living with their Muslim neighbors, uh, Sunni Muslim neighbors mainly. So that's kind of the aspect of the research that looked in, into the community relations. But I won't go into that. I want to mainly focus on gender and international factors. Um, so it's basically... Uh, some some changes, but it's overall um, a, a difficult context. And I think I will start. I will end with with, with what I said: uh, the dispersion and uncertainties about their future in Iraq uh, is, I think, forcing the Yazidis to reposition themselves vis-à-vis -vis the Iraqi political actors, the Iraqi communities, and vis-à-vis -vis international community. Uh, and and it's a kind of a, you could say existential survival tactic. Uh, but that's forcing them to change uh, in, 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 I don't know, in what way, but there's definitely some indicators of change. And I will stop there, uh, and I'm looking forward to your questions. basically made my presence here um, irrelevant and useless because uh, she kept uh, the time perfectly. Thank you for this oh, very okay. illuminating talk and uh, for shedding light on a community that's usually uh, kind of viewed and analyzed in very narrow frameworks. Um, I'm now going to open the floor for Q uh, question and answer. I would appreciate if you keep your questions uh, to just one question and wait for the mic to um, arrive where you are, and uh, yeah, we'll take it from there. Should I collect a few? Should you want yeah, to collect a few I questions? I don't mind. And mm -hmm. then, yes. Any questions? Hi. I'm sorry for coming in late. Um, okay. But also, I was wondering why you think um, sexual violence is used as a power tool in conflict, like this one and others. Yeah, and I think, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, do you want me to take sure? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's a big question. <laughs> there, there are several, I think there are several reasons for it. 
um, for for explaining it. And um, in this context, I think in the context of Yazidi, I think it's partly it was a gender deliberate strategy by ISIS uh, and and religious extremist organizations tend to um, uh, strictly control the life of their communities and and, and gender is a part of is, is, is a key determinant of the, of that context so uh, managing and organizing gender relations is is a key strategy that they use uh, to maintain cohesion but also for other reasons so some scholars say that it's because uh, the fighters, um, uh, it, it's it's a f kind of looting uh, and, and pleasure. Uh, it's kind of like a reward for the fighters. Uh, some scholars say that it's more more deliberate and more more strategic. Um, but I and usually these explanations focus on the conflict context and the the actors and their their aims and what they are thinking and what they want and their strategies doesn't really focus on the wider structural factors that kind of facilitate and generate that, which I was talking earlier before you arrived. It's okay. <laughs> so uh, I think it happens, but it, I can't give you one clear answer for why, but it is, uh, there are several explanations, but uh, I think um, gender and violence are part of uh, the fabric of, 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 of societies, especially those with, with patriarchal structures, uh, and, and these seep into and exacerbate in conflict context. Um, but it's a very simple answer, sorry. Um, yeah. Um, Michael Mason, uh, Middle East Center, excellent report, say now. Um, my question was about you say in the report about the Yazidi identity of religion are closely connected to the land. Mm -hmm. And I was interested, presuming that they can go back and there is some kind of, of safe zone, if you can say something more about this, this uh, attachment to the land, you, you mentioned it in terms of shrines, but if there were some sort of safe space, is there a reflection in the community about, for example, the, the future types of livelihoods, for example, and, and other ways in which they would live and the, and the extent to which the uh, kind of reconnection to the land in some way might enable them to, 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 to go forward in a way which um, starts to think about perhaps addressing some of the, the structural causes of this, yeah? Mm -hmm. So or is the land thought of just purely in terms of some kind of, of, of uh, way in which you go back and you revert to that which was before, or whether this is an opportunity perhaps to go forward in a different way if they can get back to that, to that territory. Mm -hmm. So there are um, issues, uh, and I haven't properly researched this, this is kind of the, 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 the land allocation and property law in Iraq. Uh, and minorities, uh, so there's a there are lots of issues there that are in place uh, that um, disadvantage minority communities, uh, and then there's also um, re uh, the the spaces and the land that were owned or uh, inhabited by the Yazidis are, uh, according to the reports, have been re being being inhabited by other communities. So when they go back, it will be 
so they, they can't do it themselves. Basically, there needs to be a structure in place, uh, security and, uh, and, and legal institutional structure to, to manage that. Um, in terms of their attachment to territory, um, they, are, they are an ancient community and their rituals are very much uh, part of the um, designed or, or structured around the cycle of the nature, you know, how the, the, the seasons change uh, and the sun uh, and, um, and then um, uh, and specific locations that they carry out those rituals. Um, one of the Yazidi uh, community leaders was telling me how um, is our situation is different because if you're a Christian, you can establish a church wherever you are and reconnect with land or, or a mosque or a sinner, but we can't do that. We have to, we have to be here. Uh, and these shrines, there are thousands um, thousands of them in in that area. Uh, so I don't think they see how how they can they can do that. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. Um, I had a question. So my understanding is that you interviewed these women and you spoken to them. Um, I would like to know how they make sense of their experience, um, what kind of narratives do they have, uh, do they emphasis more on the fact that they are victims or more that they are survivors, and how do they see their, their future inside their community? Thank you. You mean those who experience sexual violence or...? Okay, yeah. Um, they don't see themselves as victims. It never came up. Um, I don't think they can make sense of what they are going through uh, or what's happening to them. Uh, it's been it's been the most challenging aspect of my research to talk to them actually, and uh, and um, and uh, the the conversation was very much based. So I I didn't really interview them. Uh, because it wasn't the right way, um, so it was just a meeting and a chat, um, and uh, they were traumatized, um, um, which is why I basically had to leave or or don't talk to a couple of them because I thought talking to them would just cause them harm. Um, there were a couple of them who had been going through or finished their therapy, and you know were more able to kind of reflect on their experiences um, and they don't see themselves as victims. They see themselves as survivors. They are frustrated. They are sad because they have a lot of family members that are missing uh, and they don't know what happened to them. Um, and uh, I only one or two of them saw a more hopeful future, and those were mainly those who were about to hear uh, about their application for being relocated to a European country or Australia. Um, because um, I think living in the community is difficult for them. But some of them said they were very much supported by their family, and, um, and, and they are fine. So, yeah. It's very hard to answer that question. 
Hello. Hi, sorry. Um, my name is Prashant. Um, you spoke very eloquently and you covered many bases. Um, as imperative as it is um, to emphasize the plight of the Yazidi people, do you think, um, in, and, you know, in contrast, some sort of significance has been put on the ideological impetus um, a group like ISIS takes and where that emanates from? And there should be some sort of internal review um, if they're using some sort of ideological impetus in the sense of some sort of passage by today's the Yadizis, suppose there's another minority which somehow sprouts within that demographic. So do you think that um, as emphasizing the victims and um, empathizing with them, there has to be the equal kind of um, importance or synosia on um, the ideological impetus and where they get it from and maybe a um, internal debate within the faith or where these people get this kind of inspiration, the even faith, if it's Muslim Islam, is yeah, faith, even if right? it's um, you know the more kind of extreme or brutal mm. side. No, I mean um, in my paper and research, I try to not to focus on the plight too much. I mean, even though it's it's out there and you can't ignore it and you feel it uh, and you, it's impossible to. Not to focus on that, but I did try to focus on other things. So I have a quote here. Um, from one of the Yazidi activists, a male Yazidi activist shared me this story. So he's from uh, uh, Bashika and uh, from a Yazidi family that has always lived there. Uh, so this is a anecdote that was told by his grandfather to to him. Um, so she, this is these are his words. I think it was in 1936. My grandfather had a friend who was Jewish and another friend who was Christian. All three were sitting in a cafe in Bashika. Of course, at the time, Jews were being kicked out of Iraq. Gradually, they lost their jobs, could not work in hospitals and schools, could not go to school. The Jewish friend said, you know, today is Saturday, and ironically, tomorrow is Sunday. And Wednesday is not that far. He was implying that today is Saturday means we are to be kicked out as Jews. Tomorrow is Sunday means Christians will be out. And then finally, on Wednesday, as it is the Yazidi religious day, you'll be kicked out. So um, I, I thought it was very telling, this, this story, and very much talks to what you just said. Yes, mm -hmm. there should be a conversation, maybe not faith, but also the structures uh, in place. You know, what is this majority-minority relations, how it is constructed, and these hierarchies? Uh, thank you very much, and a really great report as well, and I know it must have been very difficult for you, so thank you very much for, for, for writing this. Um, two questions, I guess, about before the genocide and then the situation today. Uh, before the genocide, um, I remember speaking to one of my good friends who uh, works for Human Rights Watch. Uh, she's Bosnian and fled the war, and uh, she said, uh, you know, we suffered horrendous sexual violence in Bosnia. But we never experienced, I've never seen anything quite like what happens to the Yazidis, the selling of women in markets and otherwise. So I guess the question is about early warning mechanisms. What the early, did the Yazidis ever see any kind of early warning signs about the scale of the brutality that they were about to face? Um, and then about the situation today. Um, you have recommendations that the international community must be doing more. Um, is there anything specifically that the UN should be doing, particularly UN women, and, and also DFID as well? <laughs> Um, early warning signs were there, 
long coming, and this wasn't just only said by the Yazidis. There was a 2007 report by an international actor uh, talking about the situation in Mosul, and, and lots of Yazidi community members study in Mosul and live in Mosul. Many of the Yazidi families send, used to send their children uh, uh, to Mosul, to universities, uh, and the, the the, the, the isolation, the exclusion, the discrimination, and, uh, and you know, the, got worse and worse for, uh, for the Yezidis in that context. And, uh, and I heard this from Yezidi families as well. Uh, most of the Yezidi students basically left their studies and came back home. And this was before ISIS uh, attacks began. So, and, and similar processes was experienced by, by Christian communities as well in, in Iraq. So this was this is part of a sectarian conflict that took place, started in, in Iraq in that context, and then the Yazidis were feeling the signs and the possibilities, and they were not feeling safe. Um, regarding sexual violence at the levels, was there any kind of early warning signs that there would be this mass selling of women, etc.? Um, I don't think they no, they didn't say that they they saw this was happening. They, they knew the community was under threat, but I don't think they foresaw that. Or at least they didn't tell me anything of this, so I, won't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. What can UN Women and DFID do? Um, UN Women in Iraq or UN Women in general? Both. Um, more specifically on the ground. I think the, the UN Women is doing... Um, important work in terms of supporting the civil society organizations in Iraq uh, and, and the framing of the agenda. I don't know the specific um, projects that they are supporting or I think that there are, they are multiple. Uh, I think overall, um, going back to my point that you're maybe, you're, I think UN Women's role in this context is to engage with the uh, Policymakers in Baghdad and in Erbil uh, more to push them into uh, in initiating the mm, solutions that will overcome the structural issues uh, like institutions, legal context, also urgent issues such as what's going to happen to this community. Um, there are they have so many needs like basic needs such as you know lots of girls and women and men are not they don't have, they don't have access to treatment both health health treatment physical and also emotional and trauma trauma which is a, the society could the community is experiencing trauma at individual level and at community level so it's more uh, like basic things like giving arranging commute commute for women to reach the hospitals and things like that. So more like innovative uh, solutions, sustainable solutions, long-term solutions, rather, rather than just funding civil society organizations and um, the one-size-fits-all alleviative uh, projects. So they more like creative thinking uh, and innovative thinking would be very welcome, I think. Uh, for DFID, um, I think the main uh, uh, this security context in this case very much goes hand in hand with uh, with the safety of the Yazidi communities and and their future. So very careful long term planning and again international pressure uh, to generate support for the Yazidi community. There is I don't think there is much planning long term planning on that regard in that regard. Um, so there could be more work done with the 
governments, the regional government in Kurdistan and the Iraqi government in Baghdad more, um, you know, rather than acknowledging and inviting and meeting with people, like that's what kind of, and there is some work going on, but there, it could be more uh, deeper, it could be deeper and more structured. Uh, and looking at the concerns and taking into account the concerns of the Yazidi community uh, about their future. Very general suggestions, but yeah. Hi, um, thank you for the report. I have a question, maybe just asking you a little bit to elaborate on the issue of children born out of rape. So you were mentioning, if I'm not wrong, also in the report that um, they couldn't be accepted and mostly community leaders, for example, they said um, because of the, the issue of uh, the Yazidi identity, but then you also mentioned the fact of the law. Um, which basically says that uh, the national, well, the the religion is transferred from father uh, to son, which also impacts children born out of rape. Also, for example, of other minorities, or um, I mean, of different, uh, basically, any uh, sexual like violence-related uh, children born out of rape, basically. Um, so. I mean, I see the intersection between it, like between both of them. But do you think, since, for example, there was a de like the decree that you mentioned that the, um, was done for the survivors to, in order to come back to their community, do you think changing, for example, such a law could bring the community, the Yazidi community, to accept these children, or you think it's more of an identity issue? And I think it's both. I think it's both. Yeah, I think the, the legal system definitely has, has is having an impact, and if it's sorted, uh, it might affect the community's decision. But I think, but I think it's both, and the community also doesn't know it because it's a kind of case by cases. So, case so some women don't want those children, and they are they've sent them to those children have been sent to Baghdad or Mosul to orphanages. Um, I heard some stories, um, not directly told me, told to me, but uh, I heard these from NGO representatives who are working with Yazidi women. Um, like, for instance, they pretend the child is from the sister, or they say, "I met my husband in captivity, and this is the child from from that." Or they have coping mechanisms. They tried, like the, the community and the, each family tried to tries to navigate these. This structure and and find a solution individually, but also but in in the when you talk to the community leaders, um, it just it's a it's a sad issue. It's very difficult, but we can't accept because of the uh, because of the way religion passes from both parents. It has to be both parents, uh, and also the, the the traumatic experience the community experienced. You know, if a <coughs> child grows up. They are also. They also said, you know, what will, be, how will that child child be treated when by the by the community? They won't be safe. They won't be accepted. So it will be a traumatic experience for them to live live with us as well, or with the build with their communities. Thank you, Zena. It was an excellent report, and clearly a very hard research um, that you carried out. Um, the international, going back to the international community, one of the major focuses 
of the international community and of the women's sort of movement since, I don't know, 1990s, has been essentially around trying to find justice for survivors' victims, you know, the whole move around jurisdiction and so on. And I was really struck that that just didn't come into your um, at all. So, I mean, is there a real disconnect between what the PSVI movement over here, for example, you know, emphasising so much end of impunity, accountability, etc., etc., and what survivors are saying and what they want? And is there a frustration around that? Um, it didn't come up in the conversations either. It didn't come up in the conversations either. It's, it, they are taking it as a very like, community response, and it's almost like sexual violence is part of the genocide. It's not a separate issue. I don't see it as a separate issue. In, in, I think PSVI in that sense, by isolating the issue like that, compartmentalizing, is not necessarily a helpful thing. But from the Yazidis community perspective, they don't see it as separated. And whenever I, we talk about, they talked about sexual violence, they mentioned their position in society, the gender norms, ISIS's, uh, ISIS's, you know, they talk a lot of things. They are basically doing such amazing gender analysis uh, by, by reflecting on their own position. Uh, and that doesn't really fit with the way PSVI is. So I'm Mary Calder, and I run the conflict research program. Um, well, I think this is just an extraordinary piece of research, and you were incredibly brave and courageous to do it. I wanted to reflect a bit more on this issue of the very first question on the instrumentality of sexual violence, because while we can think of lots of reasons, it just seems to me it's very different in very different contexts. And this is, as you observed, just one of the worst cases that we know about. Mm -hmm. And where, you know, you mentioned the context very much, but I'm wondering, was it intrinsic either to ISIS's ideology or to, if you like, their strategic um, thinking? Mm -hmm. You know, did they need to do this in order to establish their caliphate or something? Or, to, or was it sort of intrinsic? I don't know whether you've got any kind of insights mm. on that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult one. Um, is it intrinsic to ISIS? Um, I mean, ISIS, in, I, I've, when you look at ISIS's doctrines and how it justifies sexual violence... Or, or you know, or enslavement—that's the term they use. And yes, it is. Don't use enslavement. That terminology is—they don't use that at all. And I d deliberately didn't use it in my research paper as well. Um, so, the, for from ISIS's perspective, um, in their doctrine, uh, enslavement is uh, justifiable, uh, and they refer to. You know this scholar, that scholar, and when what Quran says and what the Hadith says, and um, all that, uh, and they very much integrate that into their ideology. Um, so it's it's just I think it's uh, it's all of that. You know, it's a strategic tool, uh, planned, a deliberate tool, uh, and very much also instrumentalized because the way like w w women's 
bodies were treated as commodities and, and sold uh, and, and reward mechanisms and, um, you know, the way the, the, it's kind of creating a cohesion among the fighters. So there is also that kind of purpose. So they are not, they were not only fulfilling the, uh, the word of God uh, and bringing Sharia as it should be in the world and, you know, uh, fulfilling their, uh, their uh, duty as, as, a, as, a, as proper Muslims. It's not, it wasn't just that, but it, was also, it, it also served as a great instrumental uh, tool in terms of bringing the groups together, creating an economy around it, um, and management of the society. Um, I, I, there is a quote in the paper, and I didn't use the full report, but uh, this uh, woman writing for one of the ISIS's newspapers or journal, journal magazines, saying, you know, we rejoiced uh, at the entry of, our, entry of the first slave girl to our house. Uh, we, feel, we felt like, you know, the, the, we were victorious over those enemies. It was kind of a, uh, a victory uh, by, 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 in, by, by putting them in that position and subjugating them. They were feeling... But there's also a lot of, I think, psychological analysis that could be done about this as well. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, on the subject of early warnings, uh, in your response to one of the questions, you mentioned the year 2007. Mm -hmm. And just to remind you that that was at the height of the civil war between Sunni Arabs and Shia Arabs. And the irony is it is when neither Arabs nor Muslims, the biggest uh, at the time, explosion happened in Sinjar city. I don't remember the exact date, but it was in that year, 2007. And, and the question, uh, and uh, as you know, the attack on Sinjar Mount was on the 3rd of August, 2014, uh, yeah, but it was preceded in June by the attack on Mosul, Iraq's second largest city. Did you find out anything about general situation and uh, who was responsible uh, or who is accused at least, because we know in Sinjar Mount there were KDP Peshmergas and they withdrew. That's what gets to me as an Iraqi code. That is what I feel really embarrassed about. And in, in the case of Mosul City, there was at least a division of the Iraqi army, not to mention police and the security forces and, uh, and, and what have you that goes with that sort of administration. Can you enlighten us on anything uh, on that situation and of who made the decision or who didn't? And uh, I, will be, I will appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think, can I answer? Um, I think whatever I say will be speculation, uh, because I don't. I don't think even the there was a. I read a recent research, um, and someone interviewed the a researcher interviewed the uh, Peshmerga officers uh, who were responsible during that time, uh, and in his analysis, um, there was a lot of miscommunication and not knowing who is responsible for who but also uh, a deliberate decision to withdraw. Um, so when you talk to Kurdish officers, they said 
they say you know it wasn't a deliberate withdrawal uh, some say it was as it was deliberate so I don't know what the answer is I don't know what were the intentions of those Peshmerga forces in um, not providing the support there has been a couple of I think uh, small Peshmerga groups that have provided some protection and they have saved a lot of lives by creating safe passage for them but most of the Peshmerga forces were not there, either withdraw before or they didn't come. Uh, it's, a, it's a very sore issue for the Yazidis. Um, and, and, and they don't openly talk about it because they are uh, in the KRG right now, living in camps administered by the KRG authorities. It's very hard for them to just openly say, you know, they abandoned us. Uh, but it's definitely there, uh, you know, uh, outside in personal conversations that, that of course, came up. Um, um, but then th there is also the side of um, the KRG very much pushing its capacity, uh, accepted so many thousands of the Yazidis and have been providing protection for them and, you know, education, health, uh, despite going through economic crisis and also the crisis with, between Baghdad and Erbil, uh, and, you know, in limited resources, especially the Dahuk community, have been unbelievable. Um, but I, I really don't know the answer to your question. Uh, and whatever I say will be speculation. Oh, I don't know. I don't know either. Mm. Hi, my name is Robert Cole. I work for Amar. It's a small charity that works actually largely in the KRG at the moment. Um, it's more of a point than anything. One is... That explosion killed 300 people and um, was horrific and um, just the start of things for the Yazidis, but it wasn't just any old explosion. 300 people died in that one. I know it was horrendous. Um, bringing you right up to date, you were talking about DFID and UN Women and, and Ryan was talking about it too. Um, we have struggled for five years to get funding for, for anything. Um, DFID had given us nothing we can't get anything from the British government. We've got the US State Department, the European Union, nothing from the uh, different. We did a lot of research into it. Uh, and it's basically Iraq is, I think, probably an embarrassment to the British government because of where we were in 2003. Um, and it gets less money, for example, than places like, um, I don't know, parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, Syria gets 16 times as much. So it's that frustration that we we run uh, medical clinics in the in the in the camps, uh, and Amar is one of only I think Yazda Ryan used to work for is another one. There's only a very few people trying to help these girls, for example, um, that we're all talking about. Um, thankfully, the Canadians and the Australians and the Germans, to a large extent, have taken a lot of the victims. But there's still countless victims in the camps who, as you've already alluded to, feel disenfranchised by the rest of the community. And in answer to the question that you were talking about, um, they're all desperate for justice now. That's the one thing they think about. I think uh, Nadia, Murad's presence, is, and, and Amal Clooney has helped to kind of jog them into thinking that's a very good idea. If they can't get anything else out of this, they can at least see the people, the dentist from their local village that actually turned out to be their rapist, and they knew him. They wanted to see him brought before a court, so... It's that kind of frustration. So I was making a point rather than asking you a question. I'm sorry, it's a bit much. <laughs> I just wanted to say that because it's, it's so frustrating that there's a lot to be done. There's, camp, there's still 100,000 people in camps. No one wants to go home for the reasons you just said. So, yeah, it's a desperate situation. Thank you for bringing this report. The more 
we will talk about it and the more chance we've got of keeping the funding going. Thank you. Can I ask a question? So uh, I'm just curious because we're talking about a community that came to be known globally, at least, through its wounds. And I always wondered, thinking about the Yazidis, what was the before like? Because also what I like in your report is that you're talking about a continent. So you, you say conflict is kind of one factor that um, consolidates or reinforces what was already in place and happening maybe in its extreme form. So I wonder if uh, you and in your interviews you came across of any kind of um, formulation of what the past looked like, or if there are any research about the situation of the Yazidi women in the Yazidi communities um, before that, because I'm assuming because it was a it is a minority community because of the majority-minority relationships that you were talking about, there were some pre-existing factors. And then I'm going to break the rule and ask a second question, but because I want to give you kind of the space to also talk to us, you've done carried out this wonderful research. Um, I want you to talk to us a little bit about how you gained access and how did you basically, as a researcher, how was it to carry out, how was it for you to carry out this research, um, if any part of it you want to recount, or mm. I'm sure there are students also in the room who would appreciate mm. um, that knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, what was life before, um, there are, like, there are different stories about like I don't think they reflected too much on the uh, gender relations. They mainly talked about um, they mainly talked about how like they miss their home, they miss the smell of the herb that they had in their garden, and um, what they used to do as a community, their festivals and their you know life there, and they were all together. Um, it's like this, you know, not yes, romantic, very much missing that kind of the, the continuity, stability, safe, safety. Um, uh, one of them, two, two women actually said uh, that they didn't have, their children couldn't go to school. Now they are going to school, and she's happy about that. Uh, and uh, also, uh, the, that family that I visited was in a, in a, in a camp that had good relatively better circumstances so they were kind of this this is you know we have access to health services and things like that because it's, they were not they didn't have that access to in the rural areas they had to travel a long time to have access to those things so they were talking a little bit about that um, the other thing that came up not only in this research in the previous research that I did that also included Yazidis um, more Yazidi families are keen to send their girls because usually boys would go to school uh, in the rural areas, so that they kind of want to uh, send their girls to school more kind of, and uh, so there's kind of that kind of change that they were observing vis-a-vis -vis how life was before. Um, in terms of doing research on this, um, I think it's a, uh, it, it, I think it, it needs to be thought through very carefully. Um, there are a lot of ethical things to consider. Um, obviously, you know, the whole anonymity and everything, but also how you... I think the main takeaway for me was... Uh, and I had thought about this before, and I thought I was ready. But until you go there, you don't realize how actually unready you are. Uh, 
uh, it's a kind of a different experience. Uh, and it's very hard to def uh, isolate yourself from the whole feeling uh, and not to um, internalize. And I didn't even realize I was internalizing until two months after I came back here. So there is a thing called secondary trauma, visceral trauma, that researchers go through. It's real, and it, it happens. Uh, and something that I think researchers need to be ready and know about it uh, and, and be ready for it and, you know, make sure that they seek the support and institutional support and everything to, to cope with that because it's very heavy. Um, uh, I think the other important thing is the power relations in, in doing research. It's They are there. So you are there as a, you know, from the West. I'm from the region, but I'm nonetheless based in a Western institution going there uh, doing research, you know, there's this position of power that you don't intend to have, but nonetheless, in your interactions, it just, it's there, it's structural. Uh, and how, how, and then it affects how they respond to you or how your communication conversations go. Uh, I think the main thing is that, you know, especially yes, it is many of the women I talked to and the girls, they were not even aware that they could say no. Uh, and, and, you know, one of them was put in touch with me by uh, their therapist. And the therapist said, like, she has given consent. And I, did, I didn't talk to her. It wasn't even an interview. It was just a meeting. Uh, and she was at the hospital, like, just visiting. She was living, she's living at home. And she was only 17. Uh, and, and the therapist gave consent on her, you know, she said she gave consent. She's fine. And I said, I, I can't do that. So, I, I, so that those are the things that you need to make decisions on the spot and really think about, you know, okay, what do I do might harm the person or what, what you know, just thinking very carefully about those things. Um, um, and I wasn't even intending to interview actually survivors, but my contacts, through my contacts, I have been working in Iraqi Kurdistan for a long time. And uh, for but not long time, I mean, it sounded like lifetime. It's not like four or five years. Uh, but I have visited the region a lot, and I've worked with mainly women's organizations, and they have been very much at the front of the support, of the support, the support for the Yazidis. So many of my contacts came through there, and they are reliable people. They are people that I can trust their, their judgment. Um, so I think, you know, just kind of like always, you know, having, having a background, context and relationships is really important for doing research on a difficult subject in conflict contexts. You know, it's not something that you can just jump in for first time. You know, you need to have some. And I think that was very useful for me. But even that didn't prepare me for this. Uh, I think uh, Zainab has one last point oh, yeah. she wants to share, and then I'm going to sure make two announcements before we all leave. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if it is in the, info, in the booklet. This is a picture uh, drawn by a Yazidi girl uh, in, in Kurdistan, and um, uh, the artist uh, Hannah forgot her surname. Uh, it's supposed to be. Uh, is it in the back? Written there? Okay. I, okay. Yeah. So I uh, just wanted to. So, Say that. Um, please join me in um, giving our speaker.